everybody. Welcome to the Muslim Intelligence Podcast. I'm doing the intro today because Ash messed it up last week. Well, uh, the jury's out. We'll see. People may have liked my intro. Q&A. We're going to keep this one very, very stoic today. We're going to say welcome to the Muslim Intelligence Podcast because I get made fun of for doing that. But I hope you guys are having an amazing day. Ash are sitting here live together, which doesn't happen all that often, which is great. We get to have a cool, dynamic conversation uh, before the podcast, which you guys don't always get to hear during the podcast, which you do. So hopefully you've been enjoying the podcast. If you do, we're super grateful for you guys leave us a review and just being here in general. Love to hear your feedback on what you want to hear about. She's taking questions all the time off of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast Instagram. You can reach us there. You can also reach us through the Muscle Intelligence Facebook group. And we are going to be growing that and getting more people in there as we speak. Uh, it's really fun to have a mission around helping people live their greatest life, particularly in a body they love, right? I love the idea of helping you understand the things that are holding you back from this body and this mind that you're striving for. You know, I've had a lot of obstacles in my life and I've been blessed to overcome many obstacles and some I'm still you know, overcoming. I'm still ascending certain mountains in my life, and, but I love it. And I love every aspect of challenge. And when I see something in my life that's challenging for me, I'm actually grateful for it. And that's kind of part of the messaging here is learning to see the gratitude and learning to be an owner and take responsibility for your life rather than a victim. That's a big, big part of it. Because realize, guys, you can change your body and you can change your life. You can change your mind. And, this, and the story you tell yourself as to why you can is, is bullshit. It's the reason that you'll never change. So start now taking control of your life and we're going to help you change. We're here for you, support. And that's really the objective of this podcast is give you guys insight, perspective, and valuable, applicable tidbits to master every aspect of your life. And we frame that around six pillars. So obviously training is a big part of that. And training can encompass cardio and, and movement and yoga and heavyweight training and muscle building and all those things. And then there's you know, looking at uh, sleep because sleep is a massive one. If you don't sleep well, we're going to help you fix it. If you don't learn how to manage your mindset and your stress, you're going to have a hard time optimizing your body and your life. And then the final two pillars we're looking at are nutrition, which is big. We talk about that a lot and that's a really subjective area. We talked about that last time, I think, where we just talked about um, you know, this reality that it's not about what you eat. It's about the system that it goes into. Uh, and how is that, what type of nutrition does your body deal with better? And the final one is the one we're going to talk about today is your environment and get, starting to understand your environment a little bit. So there's a couple of things we're going to talk about today, your environment and you know, ultimately stress and how that may be the biggest pillar that each and every one of us needs to optimize before we can ever consider building our body or ultimately getting lean. So Ash came into the office today and said, you know, talking about some people who are doing contest preps and, and they're done their contest prep and they put on a whole bunch of weight when they're done. Think about that. Why is that a problem? And, you know, it's, it has nothing to do with necessarily the fact that they got in shape and they rebound. It has to do with the way they did their contest prep not being effective, not being appropriate for their body. They just basically took a bunch of stimulants, did a bunch of cardio and just dug a huge ditch for their body. Another body rebounds and goes, F you, I'm going to be so stressed out. You're going to eat for three weeks after or three months after put on 60 pounds or 40 pounds, whatever it is. And that has everything to do with not necessarily how your body rebounded, but how you just created so much stress. Now your body needs all of this, you know, reserve. Your body goes, well, I know this is going to happen again. How do I put X amount of reserve on my body to prevent me from ever feeling like that again? So that comes down to how you approached it, right? So if cardio is your first lever in a body transformation, or even if a diet is your first lever in a body transformation, you're doing it wrong. Like, it's just no question about it. You're not doing it correctly. The first lever should always be stress and sleep. Why? Well, if you're stressed 
stress is what makes people eat like idiots, right? And it may not be a psychological stress. It's just an internal stress. And that's your coping strategies where you've done a contest. Like, oh, now I have to, you don't realize how stressed you are or or any type of transformation. You don't realize how stressed you are. And then you start eating to cover that up and fill back in that gap. But anyways, I won't ramble anymore. I'll let Ash kind of take the reins here and run with whatever questions you guys have sent in, in the realm of those two topics. Mm -hmm. First of all, I think I'm going to start recording our pre-recorded conversations so that they can go in a blooper slash behind the scenes reel at some point, but we'll see how that goes. That'll be, that'll be uh, the VIP. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to pay extra admission. for that one for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I love the fact that you mentioned that one of the main pillars is environment because I think that most of us now accept the fact that we have to be mindful about the food that we put in our body and the approach that we take to exercise. But I think some of us still are under the misconception that our environment is a thing that just occurs and it just exists and we enter into it every day. But you have to mindfully curate and create your environment too. It sounds like common sense when you say it out loud, but a lot of people don't really think about that. We were talking about that sort of post-competition rebound or whatever that people do. And a lot of people have been there. It's because we don't put the attention into creating the right environment to come out of that competition prep in a healthy way. Right. Even going into the competition prep, what people don't acknowledge about the environment is... Your mitochondria are little kind of sensing organelles. They're sensing your energy status in your body and your cells. They're also sensing the environment around you. So if you're in an environment that's artificially lit or if you're in an environment that's toxic, your mitochondria are sensing that and they're changing the way your body produces energy because of it. And they've literally become this sensor for your autonomic nervous system to kind of ramp up production of energy. So your body goes into this low level state of constant stress. And if you know, if I'm in this, this blue lit environment with shitty air quality, maybe I'm driving my car and there's this constant underlying stress, your body's just constantly dumping cortisol, adrenaline and, and releasing energy, more and more and more energy. And that just becomes kind of your baseline. So you have this constant state of inflammation and cortisol running through your body all the time. And that's a huge problem to long-term physiology, right? So the best way to understand that, and this stat was told to me by someone from the military performance team in 1920, the resonant breathing rate, the resonant respiration rate per minute. What do you think it was? Six. What do you think it is now? Like 100. <laughs> no, like between 17 and 19. That's crazy. So in 100 years, we've effectively tripled our respiration rate and average for no other reason than stress, right? So this constant breath rate is going to be increased because your body's sensing stress in the environment. Stress comes from those insidious things that you don't even notice, right? It's the air, it's the, it's the light, it's the EMF all causing your nervous system and your mitochondria to interpret stuff around you and just kind of slowly over time ramp up the amount of sympathetic stress, thereby the amount of energy it's dumping. And guess what happens? Your body goes, hey, man, I'm dumping a lot of energy constantly. Put some carbohydrates back in. So your body uses carbohydrates not only to replenish, but also to mitigate that low-level stress. So to kind of bring that stress down. So your body's craving these carbohydrates, not because you need them, but well, maybe it is because you need them, but because you're exposed to this constant level of stress. And that's what your body has learned through evolution is going to combat stress. So your body starts craving sugars and foods. And now guess what? Now you're going to start eating more foods than you need because we know what happened. We eat a little bit of sugar. It's very hard to eat just a little bit of sugar because then you get your brain, get that dopamine hit and you want more and more and more. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of the slippery slope that's existing in our society. So Maybe the first intervention 
you know, when it comes to the environment is just start paying attention because nobody knows, right? When I say environment, it is your light. It is the blue light exposure. Are you getting enough time outside in the natural environment? You know, or are your most of your hours spent with blue light from a screen or a TV or a computer or a phone? And are you adjusting the lights in your home? Like if you have these typical you know, daylight lights, the white or the blue in the evening time, your brain's getting a sense that, hey, it's daytime. So it keeps producing cortisol and prevents that release of melatonin. Then you're going down the real, the slippery slope of poor sleep quality, right? And that's, that's the slippery slope that exists in society today. So I'm anal, like the one thing that I'm neurotic about in my life, and you know, sometimes it's not convenient for people in my life, but I really don't give a shit, is the light. It's like, if it's dark outside, it's dark in my house. If you can't read your book or whatever too bad like do it earlier in the day adjust yourself and you know let no food late at night and i'm very neurotic about those things and i'm very neurotic about you know wearing blue light blocking glasses i'm very neurotic about often wearing clothes when i'm I'm in a blue light environment i'll wear my blue light blocking glasses when i'm in an environment where i know i'm getting a lot of blue light because it not only is going through my eyes most of it's going through my eyes but a lot of it's going through my mitochondria as well so very aware of those things. And then obviously paying attention to how much EMF you're exposed to. Like if you're in a work environment or if you're in a home environment, like unplug your Wi-Fi, man, take that shit out. Keep your phone away from you. Like keep it on airplane mode when it's in your pocket. And you know, sometimes I don't talk about these things because I think they're just kind of common sense, but I realize they're not common sense. Like do not hold your phone against your body. It's never in my pocket unless it's on airplane mode as Ashley holds it against her forehead. <laughs> Do you know how long I, and I'm ashamed to say this, how long I was one of those people who put my phone in my sports bra Everybody when I worked out? Here's actually a cool experiment that I've, I've seen work on myself. If you put your phone in your pocket, and do a set and then take it out, you'll actually notice an increase in, in work capacity when, when, it's not, when it's not in your hand. That's crazy. Yeah, or in your body. And again, it, you have to be pretty in tune with your body. Like I was training at a very high level when I did that and definitively see a better response. Like if it's, you know, if it's in my pocket when I'm training, your body doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like your muscles are connected. It doesn't feel like you're getting a really great neurological output. But anyway, so there's so many aspects to, to environment. We can go deep on it. Okay, first, can you tell us about the blue blocking glasses that you like? Because I actually, this is a company that we've been talking to a lot recently, but I noticed when we were in the gym and I was like, I didn't even know that you really wore glasses that much because they look like normal glasses. And you're like, these are the blue blocking ones. Mm -hmm. They're super nice looking. Yeah. So most of them make you look like... A nerd. A huge nerd. nerd. And that's okay. Like, honestly, I'd rather look like a nerd. I've been wearing glasses since I was 15. I'm, I'm allowed to say that. I'd rather look like a nerd than have we'll have really on you know bad sleep and be stressed out because i'll tell you definitively my brain works better when i wear blue blockers i sleep better i don't have as much like low level anxiety just from wearing blue blockers and it's a huge difference and if you're learning to pay attention to your body like that that high level of awareness that i i strive for you start to pay attention to these things you're like god this really does make a big difference so you know i've wore I don't want to throw out names, but I've wore every company, pretty much the big companies that exist. And I can't say whether or not they work, but the one company that I can say works because they release all of the data on their lenses is Blue Blocks. And, you know, I reached out to the company and said, hey, guys, I love your product. I wear your product. My kids wear your product. My kids do not watch television without without really? Blue Blockers on. Yeah. So if, if it's dark outside, they're wearing red glasses. If it's light outside, they're still wearing yellow glasses because I'm trying to minimize the blue light exposure, period. If they get blue light, it's coming from outside, usually. All my light bulbs inside my house, I've changed to 2200 Kelvin, which is like really, really orangey yellow. I get rid of all the blues and then I put them on a dimmer switch so I can literally have them really bright or really low. And I think that's so important. So yeah, 
blue box. I mean, they look awesome. And I know they're coming out with new styles. It's cool that they have daytime and nighttime glasses too, because I've been doing some research since you know you guys have been uh, working together. And first of all, yeah, they're really attractive. They have nighttime and daytime ones. They're based in Australia, but yeah. they have like free shipping worldwide, I guess. Yeah, yeah which is pretty yeah. good. But I mean, again, it just goes back to like the companies that you work with are companies that are actually providing like fact-based science on this is why this well, works. So that was why I never really kind of told anybody about this before, because yeah. I honestly don't know, or in the past, I didn't know if, I'm not going to say the company's names, that X company is actually has, is it just like a red tinted lens or is this yeah. actually doing something, you know? And I had no idea. So with Blue Blocks, we have data on all of their lenses. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, these guys are actually going out of the way to spend some money and do the research and, and make sure they're getting high quality lenses. Because honestly, anyone right now, we could call a company in China and go, hey, I want blue light blocking glasses that are nice frames and have them here for $5, right? Really, really cheap, but doesn't mean they do anything, right? Yeah. They just put on a blue tint and off you go. That's not the objective. So I've actually noticed, like I said, a big difference with the clear ones. So I like those a lot and I wear those just that I know I'm going to be inside or if I'm on my computer and the yellows are kind of be like your kind of midday, you know, twilight hours where, you know, after 4 PM where the sun starts coming down or, and if you know you're in blue light and then the evening ones, like I want no blue light coming through after the sun's gone down. And that's the intent there. And from an environment and lifestyle perspective, light like that warm orange red light is so much more attractive and nice and calming than blue light like nobody likes mm -hmm. sitting under these blue lights or fluorescent light. like it's gross that like nice like candle light kind of stuff is so much nicer anyway okay awesome. i have not gotten my hands on these glasses yet i'm going to i'm working on it but they have a discount for us so it's 15 percent off if you use the code muscle obviously and the website is blueblocks.com forward slash muscle intelligence. And it's blue B-L-U. So no E. I mean, we'll put that in the show notes so people can check it out. But one other thing I wanted to talk about the environment part that I think is really important to clarify. And I think that this is something that's central to the work that you do and the podcast is talking about environment and creating a healthy, appropriate environment to your goals for people who are really type A and dopamine dominant, we talked about that this week, and people who are doing bodybuilding competitions and competitions of any kind, they tend to get better at creating an environment for a specific goal. It's when we're talking about a sustainable lifelong environment that people fall apart. And that's why a lot of the times it's after the competition that people really lose their shit because we don't know how to create that environment that's sustainable and supports health for the, our entire life. Like we can create this bubble for, you know, 12 to 16 weeks, but it's the rest of life. Do you mean like still having a jar of peanut butter in the fridge and not having to eat it? Yeah, I can't do that. I still can't do that. Right. I can't do it. So people create, you know, I have a huge problem with this and I hate to sound sexist, but I often dissuade females from competing for that reason is, mm -hmm. and maybe I'm wrong, but females, in my experience, tend to have a little bit harder time keeping a positive relationship with food after a contest. So if we say, Ash, for four months, you can't eat any sugar, you can't eat chocolate, you can't eat peanut butter, ice cream, whatever. And at the end of four months, because I say you can't, now it's like free for all. And a lot of people I've seen, the reason I, I'm stares up in this way is because I've seen a lot of people destroy their bodies, destroy and literally not be able to get it back for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know that it's a physiological thing. It's probably a psychological thing where they're creating so much stress in their body that after the show's done, they're just like, I need to eat everything. And then they get that dopamine fix and they just can't stop. And I don't know if there's any psychological or brain derived reasons as to why that happens. I don't know, but I suggest everybody, most people don't compete. Like if you can't have a jar of peanut butter in the house for any reason, 
I just think that's a problem. Like yeah. if I can't have a candy bar beside me or a bag of potato chips and not touch them, I think you have an issue with food, your relationship with food. So, and most people going into the contest are fine. Like, oh, yeah, I can have that there. After the contest, it's like, well, there's a cake beside me. I don't just need to eat a piece. I need to eat the whole thing. Yeah. That's a huge issue in the fitness industry. I honestly don't have any suggestions for people who obviously ruin that relationship other than it's going to be a battle of willpower. And yeah. we know that our willpower is very, very limited. So I honestly don't. And hopefully one day I come across an expert who can teach us like, hey, here's a strategy on how to make this better. Mm-hmm. But like, it's a tough game you're fighting because your brain is getting that hit of dopamine. And your brain goes, oh, more of this thing. I like this. This is my reward. And then it's like, right? Eating more and more and more. I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons. I would tend to agree with you, generally speaking, that it's harder for women as a woman who's done it and just been in this world too. I mean, of course, men struggle with this stuff too. I would say that there's probably a lot of reasons why it's more difficult for women. And a lot of it isn't necessarily physiological. Some of it, I think, is like cultural as well. I mean, when you combine a sport that is extremely, extremely restrictive, and then combine that with the fact that it's there's subjective judgment on your physical appearance. Sure. And then you combine it with the general sort of cultural landscape where well, women and, have and to and care more shitty, about what they look shitty, like. And the shitty, shitty approaches that people take to their contest prep, because that should be the direction that we should talk about today, right? Is, is the fact that people take these just absolutely idiotic, 1980, moronic approaches to contest prep. Yeah. One thing I will say, maybe there's an argument for flexible dieting there, right? Like as much as I think flexible dieting is a bit of a farce, like so again, it depends on how you define flexible dieting. Like, is it okay to eat a candy bar or a cookie during a contest prep? Absolutely. But when most people describe quote unquote flexible dieting, it means, you know, I could eat anything that fits my macros. And that as long as people kind of can differentiate that, like if your objective of today, I should eat 2000 calories, it does matter where those come from. It absolutely does. Mm-hmm. Is it going to hurt you in any way if you make 100 calories come from a cookie? No, absolutely not. Right. So that maybe if you want to define flexible dieting as that, great. Like it allows you, if one cookie a day allows you to prevent you from eating 30 cookies at yeah. the end of this, absolutely, man. Or one cookie a week, right? Like I think there should be some degree of flexibility in dieting. Yeah. But, you know, the reason people screw up a diet is, like I said, more about just a backward approach. If you're going into a contest prep, and, and I guarantee 95% of the people listening to this have done this. If it's not a contest prep or it's any type of attempt to lose body fat. And the first thing you do is cardio or decrease your calories. You are doing it wrong, period. Those are not your first levers. They should never be your first levers. Your first lever going into a body transformation should, in fact, be putting your calories up in most cases, right? Just changing where they're coming from, taking more nutrient-dense foods. And why do I say putting them up? Because the first objective should always be increasing performance, right? So my objective is how can I increase the amount of work, the amount of volume, that my body is being subjected to. So it may be increased volume, short term, maybe increased frequency, but I want to drive my work capacity up. That requires more calories. Why do we do that? Because that's going to increase your metabolism. It's going to increase your, your muscle mass and that's your calorie burning machinery. So our objective for any, the beginning of any new contest or body transformation is always, always, always do more, right? I want to increase my, so there's multiple or two ways basically to lose body fat, right? It's either decreasing calories or increasing output and decreasing calories should always be the last lever you pull because we know there's going to be metabolic shutdown. We know that like that there's science around that. So that's the last thing we want to do. So the first thing we do is we increase your work and like, Hey, we need to support that performance. We need to support that work with calories. We need food. We need carbohydrates. We need that stuff. And if we don't have it, 
you can't do it. You can't perform. So, you know, if the first four to eight weeks of any body transformation contest should be this attempt to increase the amount of exercise you're doing. And that could be, maybe it is low intensity cardio, but my suggestion for most people is high intensity cardio to improve your overall fitness, to improve your cardiovascular health, your anaerobic energy output. All that stuff should come from high intensity exercise first. And then as you get closer to your goal or your end result, your body fat starts coming down, your carbohydrates start coming down a little bit. You don't have as many calories. Maybe you're in a deficit. And now we introduce some low level cardio, some steady state cardio. Maybe now we're in a little bit of a deficit. Maybe now we're decreasing the carbohydrates. But those are things that happen later. Mm-hmm. Because what we know is as soon as we decrease carbohydrates, our cortisol is going to be up. We're going to be more inflamed. Our body's going to be more resistant to losing body fat. It's going to want to hang on to it, right? So if cortisol is up, your body's going to hang on to it. So I think it's really important that people acknowledge that um, just the, the typical approach to body fat is just backwards. Yeah. I personally love the idea that you mess with calories last because no one wants to decrease their calories. That sucks. But, yeah, but, actually, but also that being said, most people also aren't willing to work hard. Most people also haven't taken the time to actually learn how to do things correctly. And that's kind of this lever here, right? Is like the reason I teach what I teach is there's a reason why I've determined this is the most important lever for people because nobody does that. Like yeah. if I can teach you, if, if you spend a month here, I could teach you how to train so well, you never have to decrease your calories again in your life. Like people go, Ben, how do you eat the way you do? And, and you know, like lose fat so fast well, because I fucking know how to train. If I decide to pull that lever, I'll get shredded in six weeks, like, because I understand how to train, right? If you learn how to pull that lever, you can actually learn how to produce hard work with muscles. Your body's going to rip through calories and fat so fast. It's just a matter of like, yes, it is a matter of me going into a deficit, but because I know how to train, it happens so fast, right? Rather than people just like, uh, you know, one, I don't know how to, tra- to contract muscles correctly. Two, I don't know how to produce effort. Three, I don't know how to produce stability. And then my cognitive capacity, most people's cognitive capacity to work hard is low. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it all needs to be this cumulative effort to contract muscles harder, make sure the muscles are working, increase stability, and mentally, cerebrally taking your body where your mom, where you don't want to go mm-hmm. ultimately. So this conversation is kind of veered more around competition prep, but I actually, and based on this, yeah, that was my fault. I'll take that one. But one of the questions on social media, it was really more about life and the way that it was worded. I really wanted to make sure that we cover this because I thought it was important and it was from somebody who is an athlete and a bodybuilder and somebody who is very much, and I can relate to this in a sympathetic state a lot and veers towards that sort of state. And what they want to know is how to start cultivating this environment that is more parasympathetic and where they can at least access. But within that, like she was asking, not just how do I chill out all the time, because we can talk about that, but what workouts do I do that are still going to put me in a sympathetic state of mind? What kind of eating environment? What do I do? Well, I think the first thing for anybody who's massively sympathetic or finds their heart rate variability very low is not even to worry about the parasympathetic stimulus necessarily. It's to actually take your foot off the gas pedal, right? It's like stop drinking the multiple cups of coffee. Stop using the pre-workout. Will there be a lull for three days? Probably, but you need it. You're going to have to make that conscious decision. Like if you need coffee to get up in the morning, that's a problem. If you like coffee, like I do, like you do, but if you need it, like I can't get out of bed, it's a huge problem. Some days I just choose to have a bone broth as my warm beverage in the morning. And that's amazing. But anyways, that's step one, right? It's like remove those things that you need. Those, if I can't, I must scenarios. Like if I must have a coffee, then fucking stop. 
That's first thing because everyone's just overstimulated, right? So if we can do that, that'll be a huge difference maker and actually allow you to, to need less parasympathetic stimuli. Moving along from there, so it's important to acknowledge that the parasympathetic nervous system is the nervous system of the aerobic system and the sympathetic is anaerobic. So most people who have a high amount of sympathetic stress also have poor anaerobic health. Not all, but many. So typically people in this environment who are really body composition centric don't always spend a lot of time focused on the aerobic system. So a simple lever is breathing, right? Breathing into your diaphragm doing some extended breath holds before every workout. And extended means like, hey, it's got to be more than six seconds. It's got to be more than 10 seconds. Ideally, it's more than 30 seconds, right? Doing some extended breath holds where you're actually, it's like a strong breath hold, right? I'm like gasping at the end, right? That type of stuff over time will actually have a significant effect on your ability to maintain a high level parasympathetic nervous system. So that's a simple one that most people don't think of. You know, meditation is a massive one. Like just being able to be aware of your stress, like, you know, most people, I can walk into a room and go, well, that person's a stress ball. That person's a stress ball. Just based on their posture, right? Like, where are they holding their tension? Where's their facial expression, right? Like, it's this conscious and unconscious analysis of human beings. It's just always there. I can just, you know, everyone does it, whether they know it or not. But becoming conscious of it and go like, oh, that person's ball stressed. I'm going to go ahead and walk the other way. You could just pick that up. So, you know, that's important. Paying attention to you. What's your body language saying about you, right? Where is your face? Is your jaw tight? Where are your shoulders? Are they up and you know forward? Or are they down and back? You know, that kind of stuff. And Jordan Peterson even talks about that stuff in his 12 Rules for Life. It's like pull your shoulders back and down because it shows that you're calm, that you're strong, that you're confident. And rather than, you know, up and forward is like sympathetic disaster, pretty much. And those things weigh on each other, right? So like if you're calm and confident, you're going to have that posture. But also if you create that posture, it can help you feel more calm and confident. So it works both ways. Well, I think creating that posture is just like being conscious. And when you're conscious of something, I think the posture in of itself unconsciously will help. But I think just being conscious of anything. And if you're conscious of that stuff, I'm like, hey, relax your face, relax your neck, relax your shoulders. Now breathe into your diaphragm. You do those four things, your body will shift because being present will allow you to shift the breath, which is, I mean, your number one lever for shifting out of sympathetic is breathing. So if you're not doing some type of extended breath practice to where, you know, giving you guys the simple synopsis, if you haven't heard us talk about this, go listen to Patrick McEwen's podcast, Brian McKenzie's podcast. It's all about the exhalation. So don't shut your exhalation short. Don't cut them short. Like they have to be extended more than six seconds. Ideally, you know, pushing even longer than that sometimes is important. So my inhale may be three seconds, my exhale may be six, and maybe there's a pause at either end, right? Or if that's too complex, do a box breath, which is four in, hold for four, four out, hold for four. I did that through my entire Olympia prep in 2016 while I did cardio and my cardio became this blissful experience. That sounds terrible. Like that was, you know, sounds unlikely, (laughs) right? But honestly, it was awesome. It was meditative. So the first four to five minutes, you're like, ah, this is going to suck. And you're like seven to 10 minutes in. And I'm like, man, this is like amazing. I mean, it was my favorite part of my day. Once I kind of allowed my brain to lock into that alpha state where I was calm, I was chill and I was centered and I was, inside my body rather than like you know geeking out inside my brain it was beautiful and so anyone who doesn't like cardio try that next time you do it for the first five minutes do some four four box breaths and i guarantee if you do it consistently actually stick with it within a few minutes you'll be into a really really calm parasympathetic state which is more hopefully maybe i shouldn't say this more conducive to fat burning because you could argue in either direction it may not be more fat burning 
but my belief is it will be more fat burning. So are you saying though, that if you are able to kind of focus on your breath and implement that properly, that you can be in a parasympathetic state, even when you're in the gym crushing weights? No, not necessarily. So there's certainly a, a threshold. Like I want to be sympathetic when I'm crushing weights. Like right. I don't want to be under 600 pounds and be parasympathetic. Right. I want to be able to access that high amount of sympathetic. But I also, as soon as that set's gone, I want to be parasympathetic. So when I'm fit and I'm training hard, you'll see me in the gym and I could train with most guys at a high level, most pro bodybuilders. And I'll do my set and I'll do the equal amount of sets and reps that they do. And as soon as the set's done, I'll be calm. I'll be breathing heavy. I'll barely be sweating. And people were like, dude, like, didn't you fucking work? I was like, yeah, it worked. But then as soon as the set was done, I turned it off. Rather than most guys in the set, they're, they're gasping, they're gassed, they're laying on the floor, you know, falling on the floor. The ability to get up and then get down, right? So I want to, and I give this example in class, I don't know if you were there, but it's this idea if I go really high rate inhalation, my heart rate should shoot up. And if I go, my heart rate should shoot down with an exhalation, an extended exhalation. And that's a healthy nervous system, right? And I don't necessarily always have that because my training now isn't peak, mm -hmm. but still pretty darn good at it compared to most people. But again, I have a high level of standard for myself. What I would expect of myself is I should be able to crush a set. And as soon as I'm done, I'm chilled out. And you'll see me often doing breath holds between sets or being very, very calm between sets because, you know, the breath holds will actually increase the sympathetic arousal your brain starts going into panic mode. So I'll often do that before I go into a set. You'll see me for but, you know, 10 to 15 seconds before most sets, I exhale all my air and then I hold. And then just before I'm about to, you know, I want to gasp, I breathe in through my nose and take in all the air because there's a reason for that. And then I exhale and I go, right? So I have this 10 to 15 second breath hold on exhalation, inhale through my nose and go. And that will give you increased output. That will give you increased sympathetic arousal. This all relates to the healthy habit we want to talk about this week, which was the thing that I still have yet to implement regularly into my life. And that is 10 minutes of meditation. Yeah, uh, guys, there's a lot of levers you can implement into your life as far as optimizing body and mind. And the more I dig into this meditation piece, the more I think it just has to be there for yourself, for your family, for your loved ones, for your children, like sitting down for 10 minutes in silence and being alone with your thoughts and your breath is all that means. Like, I don't think you need to be sitting cross-legged. I don't think you need to be sitting on a meditation cushion with some funky Eastern music playing. I think it's just being alone in absolute silence and paying attention to your body, paying attention to your breath, paying attention to your surroundings and learning to just be there. single point of focus, right? Whether that be your breath or whether that be the sounds or whether that be your muscle tone throughout your body or whether that be trying to take in everything in your environment, single point of focus for an extended period of time. Most people can't focus for more than three to seven seconds. So learning to extend that is a superpower. And 10 minutes every day, honestly, you know, I was a skeptic like every one of you. It's life changing. And we use that term a lot, but you'll notice if you commit to 30 days of 10 minutes every morning and you take it away. So you do 30 days and you go, oh, I didn't really notice the difference. And you take it away watch what happens. It's, you're like, holy shit. Like that was making me a different person. Oh, you know, I like everything. It's not like you cut calories for one day. It's going to make a huge difference right. in your body composition. It takes time. And the longer you do it, the more consistent you are. You start to notice these like compounding benefits, right? And you're like, oh my goodness. Like I can't imagine a life without this anymore. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm at the point now where I'm trying to do 30 minutes one to two times a day. 
And it's just completely different. And if when I just honestly, still times when I'll go a week or two without doing it, if I'm on the road or if my kids are up real early, whatever, I don't do it. And I notice a difference in everything in my life, my ability to generate, you know, great relationships and maintain business deals and be calm and be thoughtful and work hard and be focused. And all of those things are gone. And it's just, you don't have access to your greatest brain. So I sit, you know, here's our habit of the week. 10 minutes every morning, guys, make it a habit because you've got to create your brain before the world creates it for you, right? So we get up in the morning. I can create my, my state. I can create my emotions. I can create anything I want in the morning, the person that I take with me into the world rather than, you know, walking into some environment and reacting and becoming that person, I think is, you know, such maybe your greatest opportunity in life. Like create your mind before the world creates it for you. And I like that one. Yeah, life will change. I think it's, and you can disagree with me if you want to, but I think that, and I feel kind of like a hypocrite talking about this since I have yet to really implement. I've started and stopped a lot with meditation and I've struggled with it. And I guess maybe I haven't fully internalized how important it is because I hear so many successful people that I look up to who use it as a tool. And so I'm, yeah, literally everybody I know that's successful does it. And there's still like, there's a part of me that's like, obviously this is a good tool. And yet there's still a part of me that's like, eh, you get to it when you get to it, which isn't the right way to approach it. However, what I will say, because I have started and stopped and I have started to feel the benefits and recognize them. What I'll say is that meditation similar to exercise is about finding the time and the environment and the method that is sustainable for you. Right. So like I had somebody ask me on social media the other day, like I hate cardio so much, like tell me how to do it. So I don't hate it. And I'm like, no, you don't. Yeah. It's, right. Exactly. So, when so it's I, your ego, right? So talking to you, like I started to cut you off, but for you, that's just your ego saying I'm good enough. Like I'm, I'm already, yeah, I don't need, I don't need it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yes, you are, but you can be better. Well, maybe, can maybe be it's better. not even a matter of being better. Maybe it's a matter of discovering your whole self, your true essence. Like you're very in tune with who you are and who you feel you are, but just imagine being able to discover and be alone with Ashley and be happy and fulfilled and content, needing nothing, right? And that's what meditation does. And when you bring that to the world, now you're a great leader. Mm-hmm. It's funny because I have thousands of people who say, Ben, you know, what are the things I need to do to be more like you or more successful or more happy or whatever? It's always the simple shit. And it's always like, oh, I, I don't do that. Well, why not? Like, it's just the ego. It's like, oh, I don't need that. You're good enough as it is. And I mean, again, I'm not an expert in ego. But I'm going to be diving into Carl Jung very, very soon. And I really want to understand that. Even from more like topical, superficial level, I think going back to incorporating it in a way that you are, that is sustainable because it's the way that you chose instead of the way that was forced upon you. So my answer to this cardio person is like, first of all, stop and think, why do you feel like you have to do cardio? And this was top of mind because you were telling me like, maybe you don't have to, maybe you just have to do a better job with your workouts. Maybe you have to pay more attention to what you're eating. Maybe you have to get better sleep and those things are going to sort out problems for you. But going back to the meditation, like maybe sitting in a quiet room first thing in the morning doesn't work for you. Maybe before bed works for you. Maybe, you know, there's different, maybe it's in the middle of the day. Right. I want to give a different perspective on that. Right. Like I want to look at, you know, the example we gave this morning with the car is anything you look at, I want to give the exact example, but you know what I'm talking about. Anything you look at, you can always look at the thing that I hate about this, right? I can always look at the fact that I friggin' hate cardio and you could say whatever you want, but that's your perspective. You chose that perspective Mm -hmm. and you realize you always have a choice, right? Mm -hmm. So nobody hates cardio, right? You hate what you think cardio is. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can make cardio a different experience. Maybe you can make it a, I get to do cardio. 
I get to have this time alone. I get to use my legs. I am so blessed to have this 30, 60 minutes to have this meditative experience. And maybe it's not a meditative experience yet, but if you do it a few times in a row and you focus on making it an enjoyable experience, all of a sudden it is an enjoyable experience. And guess what you've just done? You've just empowered yourself, not just about cardio, because cardio is fucking irrelevant. But you've just proven to yourself that I can take any situation in life, one that I maybe think that I dislike, and I could turn to something that actually is like the most enjoyable thing that I've ever done. Mm-hmm. And my example of that is when I climbed the mountain. I tell this story before. It's like first 90 minutes of it, I was dreading it. I was like, oh, my God, my leg's just burning. There's no way I'm going to make it through nine hours of this type of burning. I just shifted and I was like, wow, this is like so beautiful. I'm so grateful. And it sounds corny and cheesy, but you shift your brain, you shift your, your life. And if you can take that one uncomfortable experience that you dislike, and maybe it's a relationship and maybe it's your job and maybe it's your cardio and whatever, but you can take it and shift your perspective and go, hey, no, this is fucking amazing. I'm so grateful that I get to have the time and the ability and you know this opportunity to do this, and if you can shift that practice to like, hey man, now I you know I get to get on cardio. I have this time because guess what? Five years from now, you might not have the time. Five years from now, you might not have your legs. Five years from now, you might not have the cardiovascular. You might be dead. Maybe that's morbid. Maybe it's not. Shift your fucking perspective and stop feeling sorry for yourself. That's me speaking like Ben's brain works for better or worse, but it really is that. It's like, okay, if this is going to make me a better human being and my goal is to be a better human being, then I'm going to do it. And if your goal isn't to be a better human being, then fucking don't do it, but don't complain about it. I don't give a shit. Like, don't do it. But if your goal is like, hey, I want to get in better shape, then that's your goal and find the positive perspective of like, how I'm going to make this the best experience of my life. If it's a matter of putting on your favorite music or doing it with your favorite person or making a meditative experience, whatever makes it enjoyable. And like, it's not just, I want to make it acceptable or I want to make it okay. I want to make it fucking awesome. And that's how I'm going to approach everything, right? Is I'm not going to do anything in my life that's, eh, it's just okay. Fuck that. I want to make it amazing. I want to enjoy it. I want to look forward to my cardio. So how do you make your brain go the polar opposite end of that? I can't beat that, Ben. We got it. I know you can't. <laughs> we got to end there. I can't beat it. You win this round. No, I mean, I love it. The changing perspective. You're right. Like you're really literally talking me into it as I'm listening to you. I got there with the working out and the eating and the cardio and the meditation. And now it's easy, still my right? sticking point. And yeah. now it's easy. Yeah. Because yeah, there's, there's suddenly a tipping point where like, okay, now this is just part of who I am and what I do. Yeah. And everyone who meditates gets to that point. Like, mm-hmm. This is part of who I am and what I do. And mm-hmm. listen, you may go through times of... God, I did really well for 50 days and then I took a couple weeks off. It's really hard to get started again. Mm-hmm. But you just have to create that realization that, you know, this may be my, maybe I only get 30 minutes of absolute peace and happiness today, but I can create absolute happiness. So if I have no happiness in my life right now, let's say my life is relatively miserable. Well, maybe I can have five minutes or 10 minutes where I can actually create a moment of stillness and just gratitude for this exact moment and this gratitude for this body and this breath and this environment and whatever the hell I'm in, I can create that three, five, 10, 20 minutes of happiness. The rest of my day is fucking shit, but I know that that 20 minutes is there. And now that becomes my positive anchor. Now maybe I can stretch that 20 minutes to 30 minutes. It doesn't have to be during the meditation, but maybe I take that happiness that I created in the meditation and I bring that with me to the first meeting of the day or the first encounter of the day or the first meeting with my spouse, my kids, whatever. That's a different experience now, right? Now I'm looking forward to that more than anything else in my day, even more than eating and training. I'm like, oh man, like I know I can create this joyful, happy, positive, achievement-oriented experience and I can extend it from 20 minutes to 24 hours eventually. And now my life becomes this blissful experience, which we're fucking all meant to have anyways. Mm -hmm. We're all just in our own way.
it's a positive catalyst. It's very empowering too, to know that you can create those moments for yourself. You know, people feel like I'm having a shitty day. There's nothing I can do about this. I just have to get through the shitty day. Yeah. But knowing that it's always going to be there space for yourself. You, yeah, you've chosen it and you've chosen yeah. to take that perspective. You can create micro happiness throughout the day, like mm-hmm. five minutes of bliss. I do it like every time I'm in my car, I'm looking at the sky and going, holy shit, I'm so, this world's fucking amazing. And I actually feel it. It's not just a cerebral thing where I'm talking about it. Like I actually feel it. And that's just fucking awesome. And maybe you have to see the darkness to be able to appreciate the light. But hey, man, we all go through darkness and hopefully everybody chooses the light. That's it. I'm grateful for this hour that we had to chat and give me some BPAC perspective. Love it. Have a great day, guys. We love having you here. Thank you for being here. If there's anything you want us to talk about, we're here for you. Enjoy the podcast. As always, go say hi to Ashley on Instagram, Muscle Maven. Say hi to BPAC Fitness and the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Enjoy your day. Live your greatest life in a body you love. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.